I think that the foster care world, the adoption world, actually has the potential for renewing these communities, not the reverse. That was Naomi Schaefer Riley, author of six books and soon another one on America's foster care system and what can be done to improve it. This spring, she gave a keynote address at the annual summit of the Christian Alliance for Orphans, an event run by Jed Medefend, its 10-year president, who joins Naomi on the podcast today. Naomi and her husband Jason have three children, and Jed and his wife Rachel are the parents of five children, one of whom is adopted and not counting those they've fostered. America's foster care system is complex, and if you're anything like me, I bet you don't know off the top of your head just how many kids are in the foster care system. Do you? Well, I sure didn't. It's 440,000, about a quarter of whom will never return to their families and need families to adopt them. Jed and Naomi each bring expertise and sensitivity to this larger national project of caring for vulnerable children and spurring on the system, in Naomi's case, and Christian churches, in Jed's case, to better welcome in local kids who, through no fault of their own, need love and support. Choosing to foster one or more children isn't easy. It's messy. Navigating state systems isn't easy. It requires lots and lots of waiting in line. But as Jed says, especially when done in community and with the support of a local congregation, the peer pressure to help disconnected kids can also work in a positive direction, and it's gaining momentum. If you listen to the end, you'll learn a few surprising things about the foster care system and possible ways to improve it. But you'll also hear at least 10 minutes of liquid gold when today's guests cut through the noise to share a few parenting insights, from handling your smartphone at the dinner table to letting your kid be creatively bored, not constantly entertained. Will America's many faith-based communities step up to the challenge and lead? Jed tells us what they're currently doing, but as Naomi says with a twist, it may be that the real gift to the churches is coming in the form of 440,000 children. We're very pleased today to be joined by Naomi Schaefer Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of six books, and by Jed Medefend, president of the Christian Alliance for Orphans and the author of three books. So there's a lot of wisdom in the room, and I understand you guys saw each other relatively recently, a month ago or so? Yeah, we saw each other a month ago in Louisville, Kentucky, when I was privileged to get an invitation to come to the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit. I was actually planning on coming anyway, just for research purposes, but it was nice that they asked me to speak too. So I've been spending the last couple of years working on child welfare issues, which includes foster care, adoption, child protective services, and family court, among other things. And I've been really fascinated by what's been going on in the faith-based community around these issues. And Jed has been a great source for me on these questions. Nice. How was it? What was the conference about, Jed? How'd it go? And what is Christian Alliance for Orphans? Yeah. Well, the Christian Alliance for Orphans is a coalition of lots of different organizations that are all serving vulnerable children in different ways, motivated by their faith. Everything from serving kids and families in many other parts of the world to right here in the U.S., in the U.S. foster system. And each each organization does independent work, but really through CAFO, they join in shared initiatives. 
that are really designed to both grow engagement for vulnerable children and families, but then also guide that in effective ways. And uh, and as Naomi mentioned, we're just seeing a, a real surge in the engagement of faith communities on behalf of kids, both in the U.S. foster system as well as globally. And so it's just a one of those great things that you love being a little part of. Foster care has been an issue that's plagued people for a long time, and I think there hasn't been a lot of news in the world of foster care for the last few decades. It's been a fairly depressing topic in many ways. And several years ago, when I started looking at what was going on in churches and church-based organizations, I saw this kind of atmosphere of innovation that I was telling Jed I saw at CAFO. But I think a lot of these faith-based groups have had two major kind of revelations, if you will, sorry about the pun, about what needed to change, particularly in the area of a foster care and adoption out of foster care. The first one was, you know, that whole picture that you see of the kid on the nightly news, you know, it says, oh, isn't he cute? You know, wouldn't you like to adopt him? This is not a very effective way of getting people involved in the issue. And it was what you call broadcasting instead of narrow casting. And I think a lot of religious leaders and other people involved in this work really saw that this was not as effective as it could be. And so what you had was people who started to go into individual churches, often mega churches and other communities and just say, no, actually, there are six kids who are in the foster care system who need a place to be tonight, and they're in your zip code. And that seemed to have a much stronger effect on the people in the audience. I think it made them feel the immediacy of the problem. And the other big revelation that people had was that it's really hard to do foster care, and you need a lot of support if you're going to do it. Foster care and an adoption out of foster care, I think, really can take a toll on marriages. I mean, there are huge financial pressures, emotional pressures. These kids have experienced often severe trauma. And so the idea that they're just going to, you know, assimilate into your home kind of seamlessly is crazy. And so what these churches did was say, you know, we are going to set you up and make sure that there are people who surround you and give you the kind of support that you need, whether it's respite care or meals or other kinds of support in order to make sure that this has the best chance of being successful. And so those two things, I think, have really just driven me to want to find out more about the innovations that are possible. Mm-hmm. So you're writing a book these next, is it year, year and a half or so? Yeah, is that, yeah. yeah well, we'll get there. Huh? <laughs> no pressure. Uh, seventh. Uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the landscape. I mean, how many people are out there out there that are in the foster care system or are needing to be adopted. That's right. So in the U.S. foster system, there's about 440,000 kids at any given moment who are in the system. And about three quarters of those are actually, the hope is that they could be reunited with their biological family. That's not always possible, but that's the plan. And then about one quarter of them uh, need new families right now. They're what are considered waiting children. And uh, so those are kind of two distinct categories of need. And in the, the latter, we need families who are willing to say, I'm willing to give a child a new permanent family as part of my family. And that's, that is, as you can imagine, a big life decision for any family. And then the second category is what's called foster care, right? Where someone's saying, I'm willing to take this child in temporarily and love them for a certain period of time until the possibility that they would be reunited with their biological family. Each of those journeys, I can tell you personally from my own experience, but also from walking with many, many families who are doing this, they they 
They can be both very rewarding and, as Naomi mentioned, very difficult. These kids are in the foster system through no fault of their own. You know, they haven't committed a crime and then gone into foster care. It's those who were entrusted with their care. Their parents have in some way not been able to safely care for them. There may have been abuse. There may have been severe neglect, maybe other issues. So the state has said these children need at least a temporary safe alternative to their home. And so the state has taken custody of them and is seeking to do the very best it can for them. But, but the reality is government itself on its own is not a good parent. You know, the things that these kids most need to thrive are love and nurture and belonging and consistency. And so government itself isn't going to be able to provide for that. So that is where the nonprofit sector and faith-based communities in, in particular are really stepping up and saying, hey, we want to be a core part of the solution. I have yeah. a question about that because of your backgrounds. I mean, I know, Jed, that you worked in the faith-based office under President Bush and had a number of roles, including leading that office for a time. And Naomi, I understand you have written this book, among other things, got on the quad that you went out in the 20 religious colleges and you kind of got under the DNA of those schools and told the true story of who they were. There are, what, 130 or so colleges in the CCCU and there are maybe 900 religious colleges of the maybe 1,700 liberal arts private four-year colleges of maybe 4,000 colleges out there. But so a lot of them are religious. And I'm wondering, I guess, you know, if you think that the religion dynamic, that the faith dynamic plays a, a role in a number of families who do choose to get involved, do choose to serve, choose to act. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, the evangelical community in particular just plays a hugely disproportionately large role in foster care and adoption in this country. And I think that one of the things that I've been interested in is just as someone who has done kind of a little bit of comparative religion over the years is why is it the evangelical community? I think people traditionally associate actually Catholics with being very involved in adoption. But one thing that's happened is that a lot of Catholic parishes, first of all, you definitely don't see this kind of activity. You don't see somebody, a priest, getting up and saying, there are six kids in this zip code who need a home tonight and who is going to volunteer. You do see a lot of, you know, passing the plate and saying, you know, would you contribute to these organizations that do foster care? But the buck has to stop somewhere and somebody has to step up and say, no, I'll open my home. But there are sort of other cultural factors here, I think, that seem to prevent some religious communities from doing it. I attend... I think what is the largest conservative synagogue in Westchester in the suburbs of New York, there are 800 families. And I will tell you that when I tell people what I'm studying, they look at me like I have three heads. They don't know anyone who does foster care, don't know anyone who does domestic adoption. And to them, this is a very foreign idea. You know, one thing that's been suggested to me is that our kind of culture, our sort of hyper helicopter parenting culture, where we're trying to kind of craft and curate the perfect children, makes it very difficult, particularly in middle and upper class families in America, for us to be able to assimilate the idea of having a child who comes with their own set of problems. But I also think it's really about kind of creating a critical mass of people who do this. Because if you can make it seem normal, like some churches you go into, there are two dozen families who are doing foster care, doing adoption. And suddenly it seems like not everyone is doing it, but this is a perfectly normal life choice. And the question is, how do you change these other religious communities so it becomes a perfectly normal life choice for other people too? The reality is it is a difficult journey 
right? It is beautiful, but it is difficult. If you're opening your heart and your home and welcoming in children who've known a lot of hurt, you're going to share in that hurt. And so, this is just something that we need to talk about very openly, and, and it is increasingly talked about openly in the Christian community. Kind of the recruiting strategy isn't, hey, it's so beautiful and it's all rainbows and unicorns. You know, it's actually, there's conversations about, hey, this is going to be a really hard journey, but we're going to walk with you in it as a community. And that's a key part of it, I think. Looking back at history, I think it's also really enlightening to recognize this idea of caring for, you know, what traditionally has been called the orphan in distress. That's a phrase from the Christian scriptures. Caring for orphans and widows in their distress has been a clear Christian commitment back since the earliest days of the Christian church 2,000 years ago. And that stems from that scripture contains really clear calls to be a part of this. It's something that is actually an attribute ascribed to God himself that he cares deeply about these things, and so his people are called to do the same. And then the other factor I'd note historically has just been that the very centerpiece of Christianity is the gospel story, and the way Scripture describes it is that God himself, when we were in great need, welcomed us into his family through adoption, Um, and it describes us being welcomed in as children, sons and daughters of God. And so, when that is the core story of your faith, then the idea of reflecting that in one's family saying, we're going to be a place of hospitality that welcomes in children as well as others that are in great need becomes a a fairly natural thing. And so, you've seen that throughout history. And so, what I think we're seeing today, there's a resurgence of that commitment, but it's really just an ancient role that has been a part of church history all over the past 2,000 years. Are you seeing any changes? I mean, Jed, if you've been at this for a decade or so, you know, in sort of how adoption was approached earlier on, foster care engagement was approached, you know, nine or 10 years ago to today. I mean, Naomi mentioned this idea of more congregations providing other supports, babysitting or taking the kids to the doctor if they need it, something non-families who are, you know, sort of part of the larger community. Is that a trend? Are there other trends at play? Yeah, there definitely are. I think we would not be overblown to describe this as a, not just a trend, but kind of a movement of large churches, very small churches, everything in between that are choosing to, one of their defining traits is caring for vulnerable children and families. And I would say that going back, you know, 15 years or so, as many churches were beginning to do this for the first time, there was often, I think, a rose-colored glasses presentation of what was involved, whether we're talking about inter-country adoption or local foster care or other things that, you know, an emphasis on the beauty of it, which is certainly a part of it. I mean, I can tell you as an adoptive father myself and, and having done foster care, there are just beautiful moments that are some of the sweetest things in my entire life have come through adoption and foster care. But at the same time, some of the very most difficult things in my life have also come through adoption and foster care. And so, early on when people encouraged others to consider adoption and foster care and caring for broken families and these things, there was an emphasis on the beauty. Today, I'm seeing an increasing appreciation for the complexity, and we're wading into really broken situations. We're going to share in some of that hurt, and that's what people are signing up for. So, they're well prepared for it themselves, but then I think the entire faith community together can take that on and say, well, if, you know, a handful of families here are fostering and some are adopting, we will wrap around those families and do this together as a community. One of the other things that you're seeing, just to 
talk about a little bit that complexity a little bit more is you're seeing the difficulties, the emotions that foster families are wrestling with in terms of the ideas of family reunification. I mean, that this population of kids who are fostering, the goal, at least of the system for them, is to be reunified with their families. And our system is broken in a lot of ways. And so when we say our goal is reunification, you know, we are often sending kids back and forth from foster families to biological families over and over and over again. These kids are experiencing trauma whenever they are removed from a family and whenever they are put in a new situation. And what does that mean for your family, you know, that has decided to take this child in? You know, you, you've you welcome this child. How do you explain that to your own children? They're going to stay with us for a few months, and then they're going to go back. And they may cry whenever they come back from visiting their biological parents because maybe something bad is happening or maybe something bad happened to them before. And then after a few months, they may be taken away forever, and their biological parents may never want us to see them again. I mean, these are really hard issues for a family to deal with. And for anyone to come kind of invite that in to affect their own children. I mean, that, you know, it's one thing for like a young couple or an empty nester to say, like, we're willing to take this on. But how much do you want to expose your own children to that sort of thing? And then the other thing is just sort of the way these families are treated by the system is so bad. And so many of them I talk to have learned to accept this. They've learned to understand that child welfare workers may treat them very badly, may yell at them, may not give them all the information they need, that when they go to family court. No one may be interested in their opinion. And one thing I worry about, and I maybe have said this to Jed over the years, is this system needs to change. And I'm happy that there are people in the system who are willing to accept its constraints and participate in it. I worry that if they accept it too much, we're not going to have the critical mass of people who are saying this needs to change. I think it's a tough balancing act. Mm -hmm. I I read your piece, sorry, and and preparing for this conversation a little bit earlier today. Uh, Naomi in the LA Times, we'll link to it in the show notes, about this HBO documentary, Foster. And your conclusion basically honors the importance of tech and faith-based nonprofits and, you know, better data and schools and individual families stepping up, faith-based organizations stepping up, but essentially saying it's rather short on solutions. It does at least depict the reality, the gritty, difficult, painful reality of foster system. And how does the system need to change? Well, you know, just to piggyback on what Naomi said a moment ago, generally speaking, the statistic is that about half of foster families drop out before the one-year mark. And some of that is caring for very wounded children and, you know, the complexity of that. But a lot of it is just dealing with the system itself. And it's very challenging. And that's always going to be the case, I think. I mean, anytime you have a system that's dealing with broken situations, the system itself will carry some of that brokenness in it. But I do think, you know, one of the things that can change is just an orientation to to see foster parents as vital allies in caring for children rather than as uh, kind of hired hands or mercenaries that are just hired by the state to provide some shelter. Because really what these kids most need, they need love. They need the family experience where they're part of an ecosystem that's larger than themselves and that's different than often a very warped 
situation that they had been in before. That's what they need. And so for the state that's trying to do the best for these kids, having these quality foster families that feel like they are real partners in this, their homes and family experiences are a vital part of caring for these kids, that would be one you know thing that I would put at the top of the list in order to keep the quality families in the system that are going to provide that best healing, caring experience for the kids. I've been talking to people recently about this question of how much foster parents are paid. And it's one of those, you know, funny economics questions where the people who you most want to be doing it are not doing it for the money. So is paying them more really the solution? And I tell people, you know, what they want is a different kind of what some people refer to as like a procedural justice. They want to be heard. They want their voice to be out there, whether it's in the courtroom. They want their opinion to be valued. They want to be able to tell somebody who matters what happens when this child is going back and forth with visits, and we're not giving them that voice. And so for the families that we're talking about, no amount of money is going to fix that. I mean, it would be like if I offered you, you know, $500 to go to the DMV six days this week. I mean, no one in the right mind would take it, even if you wanted this. I mean, who, who wants to be treated like that? How much would you have to get paid in order to be willing to be treated like that? And that is what the child welfare system is like. So I hope that over the next few years, we can develop a critical mass of people who really want to not only take on this work, but also work to change the system so that other people will take on this work. Mm-hmm. Piggybacking on that, I think Providing families with some flexibility so that they can keep many of their own family rhythms as they welcome in this child. Because I I know for us, for, for instance, we were placed with a young boy and suddenly we had, you know, lots of appointments and court dates and family visits. And of course, that's an import, those are all important parts of the system. But we were very grateful to have an agency that was willing to do some of the driving for us. And that really helped us do it because, of course, we have other children who have their doctor's appointments and piano lessons and soccer practice. And so if the system can flex around what I would just say kind of an ordinary middle-class family life, if the system can flex around it, then those families can foster. But if it won't and says to those families, hey, you need to show up at 10 a.m. here and then on Friday at you know noon there, these families that, that kind of have ordinary rhythms of life just won't be able to do it and the system will lose a vital resource. Yeah, I wrote a piece last year for City Journal about family court in New York. And I think seven out of the eight cases I watched, or maybe even a higher percentage, all resulted in continuations. I mean, people would show up, some vital document would be missing, some person would not be there who was supposed to, and everybody who had taken a day off work to come down to the Queen's courthouse was sent home and told to come back in three months or six months or eight months. And meanwhile, a child whose timeline is, of course, much different in terms of perception than an adult's, their case has been put on hold because of this broken system that we have. The other thing that I worry about is that, you know, one of the reasons foster parents get frustrated is that they start to feel like they're contributing to the problem. Like, you know, when they are responsible for a child who is not being treated well, who is being sent back repeatedly to a family that is not capable of caring for them, they start to feel like I'm not making things better. I've just become another cog in this machinery that is harming kids. And, you know, one of the things that I've really spent a lot of time doing research on now, I mean, everybody talks about the connection between the rising number of kids in foster care and the opioid crisis. The numbers of kids who experience neglect where substance abuse is an issue, it's probably close to three quarters of the cases of severe neglect that we see. That's a very hard problem to fix. I mean, when we talk about the opioid crisis, everybody talks about 
about we don't have a solution to addiction. But when it comes to these kids, the question is, you know, how many times are they going to go back to their biological family if we haven't solved the addiction problem? And I think there's a lot of talk now about, well, maybe neglect is really about poverty. Maybe it's really that they need a stable home. I'm not sure that's the case. What I see is, and I tell people with kids this all the time, like, imagine when your child was one and you were trying to keep track of them and make sure they didn't touch the hot stove or run into the street or any of these things. And then I say, now imagine trying to do all that while you're high. It's really hard. And we have to be sure that especially those young kids are safe in these homes. And until we figure out the magic bullet for addiction, it's going to be really hard to do that. I've heard you talk, I think, in the past a little bit about about how technology could be helpful or could be more helpful than it is. You know, when we go to the doctor today, we're all privileged to have a digital, you know, set of records that are sort of there, even if you transfer from state to state, and that maybe there could be some role for technology in, you know, setting up providers and setting up state arbiters as well of the system. Is that in play? Mm. Well, you know, the, the technology that has brought so much good to many other spheres has not certainly had, had a lot of impact in the child welfare system. And, and there are certainly applications that I think could make a big difference. One of them was highlighted recently at an event Naomi hosted, actually, that potentially would match willing families that are willing to adopt with children, not just in their immediate area, but, but around the country, potentially, who need families. And so you could potentially have much more ideal matches for children around the country, so, somewhat like eHarmony, although, you know, you'd want to not use that analogy too much, but it, but I think... No, no, no. <laughs> One of the creators of this technology actually did the um, did the eHarmony algorithm, and there is a science to this question of not only trying to make sure that their relationships and their personalities that mesh better and will last over the long haul, because you do have adoption disruptions, which is probably the worst of all possible worlds, that you think you've permanently placed a child, and the family says, no, we can't take it anymore. So they're using the the data on that end to try to sort of figure out what the best matches are. But also the way that they've opened it up across borders has meant that there are a lot more possible matches that are going on. There are other sort of interesting examples, too. Uh, one of the attendees at CAFO was a group called Care Portal, which allows child protective service workers and other child welfare workers to put online the needs of particular foster families or biological families. Those could be material needs like a crib or a bed. They could be, I need a ride to work in order to keep my job. Or they could be, you know, the need for a family to care for a child. And what you're seeing is that a church will sign up to be a part of this. And suddenly, you know, they're seeing in real time what those other families need, and they're able to provide those. And, you know, CPS doesn't really have the ability to do this on their own, but the churches are stepping up and doing this. And the final area that I've written a little bit about where data, I think, could really improve things is predictive risk modeling, where you have tens of thousands of calls that are coming into some of the biggest child welfare agencies in the country. And it could be anything from, you know, I see mom left her kid in the car while she ran to the dry cleaner to I think my neighbor is, you know, beating his son. But they have to figure out, you know, what are the cases that need to be most urgently investigated? And we have a lot of data on these families that we're not making use of. We have school records, we have health records, we have food assistance records. So using those and an algorithm, you know, we can find out a lot more about who are the most vulnerable kids. And I would love, the model has been piloted in Allegheny County, which is the area around Pittsburgh. And I think they would really like to see, and I would really like to see that replicated elsewhere around the country. Interesting to have 
a Carnegie Mellon and the sort of data. I can't remember. There's a big bunch of tech presence in Pittsburgh. I imagine that sort of helps to create a culture that's a little bit less fearful of some of that. But you wonder about that. You guys have each written a little bit on parenting as well and technology. And I wonder, to turn just a little bit in the conversation, if you might share any of your thoughts about that piece of the culture that may, you know, receive children from the foster care system or potentially adoption and the kinds of, of families who are getting involved and kind of what you'd like to see there versus some of the current trends when it comes to parenting. Hmm. Well, you know, certainly there's no question that the use of technology by children, I think, is one of the big, big watershed issues facing parents and, frankly, educators and many others today. And while certainly there are many benefits to screen technology that we all use, I certainly value deeply, there's also a lot of research that's very strongly indicating that increased use of screen time has very significant negative consequences for children. And it is highly associated with everything from increased anxiety and depression, suicidal thoughts, as well as just the loss of capacity for attention, which in many ways, really the capacity for sustained attention is a keystone to all manner of future future success, whether that's relational success, learning math, being able to create something beautiful artistically. And so if, if that capacity is eroded, then a child really will be at a significant disadvantage or, or society that's full of adults with diminished you know, capacity for attention. And so these are very significant things. I've, I've appreciated Naomi's uh, writing and research on this topic. And I do feel like it's something, not just parents of kids who have come from hard places through foster care or elsewhere, but all parents need to take very seriously. But it is having a disproportionately bad effect on kids who are vulnerable. I mean, when you look at the data broken down by income, by race, by education level of parents, you will see that the most vulnerable, poorest kids from difficult backgrounds are getting hours and hours and hours more of screen time each week than their richer, more educated peers are. And it is a huge disservice to them. It's a disservice educationally and relationally, as Jed said. And what's happening you know, for the most vulnerable kids is they've glommed onto technology as a kind of security blanket as a, you know, I can take my phone with me wherever and, you know, I can just immerse myself in this other world and not have to deal with all of the problems that are going on with my family. And for those of us who are trying to help these kids, you know, it's hard to sort of take away the technology and peel that back. And a lot of foster and adoptive families really struggle with this because they don't want to take away the security blanket. But on the other hand, the reason that they're in that home is to provide that love and provide that kind of face-to-face contact and the conversations and the relationships and the dinner table talk and all of those things that you can't do if your face is glued to the phone. So I think as a society, we need to talk much less about kind of this digital divide stuff and really talk about, you know, how the worst off kids are getting the most screen time and it's harming the outcomes that they're already having. Mm-hmm. My wife and I are watching the show, This Is Us. Um, it's our one show. We're TV free, but we do watch one show. We watch it on our laptops. You're anyway, loud. yeah. What's your best piece of advice to a, a foster parenting family who welcomes a 14-year-old girl who, say, does really have the longstanding practice of being on her iPad all the time, and she brings her iPad into the family, and you're trying to maybe, say, do it a little differently? I mean, how does that actually work? Well, I think maybe Jed is much more able to answer this question than I am, because when I give talks to parents, it's funny about technology. Inevitably, there'll be a parent of, like, a four-year-old in the room debating about whether to get them an iPad, and there'll be someone on the other side of the room who's got, you know, a 14-year-old who won't put the iPad down, and they'll be like, don't do it. And 
now be like, I don't even need to be in this conversation. You guys should talk to each other because the truth of the matter is once they have it, it's impossible to take away. And that is the the challenge of the hypothetical family you're talking about. But maybe Jed has some ideas. Yeah. Well, it's certainly not, not an easy topic. You know, the two things I would commend would be one talking with our kids, whether they are, you know, biological children or growing up in our home or kids we've welcomed in in other ways as well, is just be frank and be open about, hey, these are the reasons why I'm having hesitations about you spending lots of time on screen. And and I want to apply this to myself as well, right? Because frankly, you know, the, the parents' use of screen time can be a, a real problem too. That can become a barrier to that quality time that's needed. And so, you know, I think that those open conversations about technology, about the, the potential downsides, and I think there's three categories. This is, of course, much longer conversation, but three things that we would need to address in terms of technology. You know, one is every moment that you spend on a screen displaces something else you would be doing, right? So that's face-to-face conversation, reading, physical activity, sleeping, which is significantly being displaced by screen use. And so, you know, there's the displacement factor. Then second, there's the content factor. So, you know, children at younger and younger ages are being exposed to really searing images, violent sexuality, as well as bullying and relational elements, comparison with others. And so the content factor is very significant as well. And then the third is a little bit more subtle, but but I think at least as important is the, the medium itself begins to shape our minds. If you are consistently spending time in a medium in which there is constant high stimulation and Anything that becomes slightly boring can be immediately swept away with the flick of a hand. It conditions your mind and and literally begins to rechannel your neural networks so that it's very hard to interact with anything in life that isn't highly stimulating. And so that factor, the neural formation factor, is also important. And so these are things that I talk with my kids about, even my 7-year-old and 9-year-old, 10-year-old, you know, my my 13-year-old and 15-year-old. Those The two of them are actually really engaging these topics. And so I think just the open conversation in the home is key. The second category that I'd say is that all of us, and this isn't just for kids, all of us need to decide what places in our life we're going to yield to technology and say, I see benefits, I'm going to let technology have a role here, and where we're going to say, no, this is, this is not something that I'm going to allow technology into because, you know, the most brilliant minds in our world today, many of them are developing apps and screen devices and other things that are intended to get more and more of our attention. That's their goal, and they get paid if they do get more of our attention. And so if we as consumers of that don't make decisions about where we will allow technology to have a place, um, it will be utterly ubiquitous in our lives. I think the displacement question is so interesting to me because that's, in many ways, the way that the parents actually have the most power, which is that you can offer what are the other alternatives. You can say, we're all going to go outside, or now it's time for you to go outside, or now we're all going to be reading books, or it's time for us to have dinner together. These are the kinds of activities that we can offer kids that really they actually do enjoy once they get into it, even once they put down their screen. I often compare the screen time issues to going on a diet. Like, you know, you can't just cut out everything. You actually have to say, no, this is what I'm going to eat instead. And this is true for kids at very young ages. I think the temptation to hand over the screen starts so young because, you know, these are kids who it naturally they don't have a long attention span and you want to have some half an hour conversation with an adult and how are you going to keep them busy? I do think this is a question that 
many generations have faced before you, and they face them without screens. I always tell the story because, you know, I'm a, a journalist by training that when my daughter was, you know, 10 months old or so, I used to hand her newspapers, which she used to happily spend at least 20 minutes just ripping up. And she would be filthy by the end. But frankly, I didn't hear, you know, 20 it's not minutes. as clean as an iPad, <laughs> That's right? true. Yeah. No, no, no. The mess, mess, is, right? the mess is actually a big deal. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, Legos and arts and crafts and all these things that we have in my house, they are much more difficult to clean up than the iPad. And that is another factor that's pushing parents toward technology. But I also think they're not building the capacities of kids to sort of lengthen their attention span to say, like, no, you can play with this for a little while. One book that I really loved was called The Plug-In Drug that came out about 40 years ago or so. And it was about television. The author notes that we used to actually have nap time for kids well until they were five or six. They weren't taking two-hour naps in the middle of the day. It was just, this is quiet time. You go upstairs to your room if you want to take a nap, fine. But frankly, if you want to sit there and color or read or whatever it is you want to do, this is our quiet time. And now parents, you see like, oh, my two-year-old stopped napping, and now I have to come up with activities for them to do for those two hours in the middle of the day. And this author, Marie Wynn, said, no, actually, you don't. You know, this is a time where we can relax and without turning on a TV. As a place to start for parents, I would say start with yourselves first and just set simple commitments in your life. You know, take an hour when you kind of have a little bit of time to think and say, okay, what are the places where I want to keep technology back so that I can give myself more fully to other things. And so for me, that has involved a commitment to when I wake up, I'm not going to take my phone off of airplane mode. I turn it on to airplane mode when I'm about half an hour before bed so I can kind of begin to detox from all the news and activity of the day. And then I don't turn it back on until after I've actually first had a time of a reflection. That's a part of my spiritual rhythms. It's been a, actually a time of spiritual reflection and prayer in the morning, but then also some time with my, my kids. I have breakfast with them, and so I don't turn my phone on until after that because if my phone is the first thing I look at, then other people all over the world are deciding what I, my first thoughts of the day are going to be. Those are precious <laughs> thoughts, you know, and, you know, a second commitment I have is just not allowing a screen at mealtime. If I'm with a person, I want to be present to them. And so during that time, I turn it off and put it at a place where I ideally can't see it. And, you know, everyone will have their own different commitments, but I think it starts with parents making those commitments. And then, of course, inviting your kids and, and instructing your kids to keep those same commitments and similar principles. Yeah, I think it was Jonathan Hyde on this podcast talked about the sort of insecurity that that cajoles for children at table when the parent has a phone just placed down, face down, or maybe it was Andy Crouch, but it's an interesting. So I, the last question I would raise is the religion one. You know, where does the input for parenting, you know, improvement come from? It might come from the bookshelf, you know, at Barnes & Noble or Amazon, but it sometimes comes from religious congregation, you know, and the latest numbers, even though the country's got the rise of the nuns, still have about 25% of the country is evangelical. About 20, 21% of the country is Catholic. About 14% is mainline Protestant. About maybe 9, 10% is African-American Christian. Maybe 2, 3% Jewish, et cetera. We get on the line, you know, the truck gets smaller and smaller, but it's still a pretty large contingent in the country. And I wonder, as you think about the long-term repair, renewal of the foster care system and adoption space, you know, if there's any last sort of thought you have about the religion role, the faith angle on that. Actually, I've been thinking about this in the opposite way, which is I think that the foster care world, the adoption world actually has the potential for renewing these communities, not 
the reverse, which is to say that it's really hard for us to, as much as we talk about the most vulnerable people in our society, for us to have that connection with other adults. Because it's very easy to blame other adults for the problems that plague them. I think even the best intentioned among us often think, well, you know, it's kind of their fault that they're in that situation. But I think very few people think that way about children. And I think children are in the foster care system, and I don't mean to put them in this sort of utilitarian frame, but that they're serving as this bridge between the kind of haves and the have-nots in this country. And once you become interested in the fate of that child, you've become interested in the fate of a whole group of people, If they're especially if they're going to go back to their biological family. You become interested in the well-being of their biological mother, of their grandmother, of their aunt and uncle, of other people who might serve a role in caring for them. And so I think that religious communities will start to have more and more of a stake in that whole world if they engage in the foster care space. You know, one of the things that I love about laboring in this field of foster care and adoption is that amidst a universe that seems solely filled with bad news all the time. This is an area where some really good things are happening. A lot of people across the country, particularly in Christian communities, but in other places too, are stepping up for kids in the foster system. And the need we see, it's big. There's, you know, 400,000 plus kids in the foster system. But but consider this, there's somewhere around 300,000 churches in the United States. And so realistically, if each church was really willing to welcome just one child uh, each year, through foster care adoption, there would be far more than enough loving, welcoming homes for for every child in foster care. And so it's not kind of one of those pie-in-the-sky, you know, issues where you say, I wish we could deal with this or that, and you kind of know deep down that you'll never solve that. In the foster system, we really could get to the place where we see, and the phrase we, we use at the Christian Alliance for Orphans is more than enough. We could see more than enough loving homes for every child in foster care, including foster families, adoptive families, and restored biological families. Wonderful note to end on. Thank you guys so much for coming over. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's conversation, spread the word. And if you have an idea for a guest for a future episode, please let us know. You can reach us via Twitter at faithangleforum or at josh underscore good underscore, or you can send us a note to faithangle at eppc.org. Thanks for listening.